I'm a part of a unity movement, and if you're a part of this church, so are you, because we are a unity movement. There's another thing I'd like to say, and I shared it two or three weeks ago when I spoke. It's this, remember who you are, and you'll know what to do. About 20 years ago, early on a Saturday morning in April, nearly 100 of us from the Mitchell Church of Christ boarded a charter bus, and we made a pilgrimage to a little place outside of Paris, Kentucky, which is not far from Lexington. We went there to remember who we are so we would know what to do. We went there to remember that we're a part of a unity movement called the Restoration Movement. We had a wonderful day. A friend of mine, Gary Holloway, who is a church historian, was a professor at Lipscomb, came up from Nashville, Tennessee, and he met us in this old log cabin meeting house that's now enshrined with this big stone structure there in Cane Ridge, Kentucky. Why? Because something very significant happened in and around that log meeting house in Cane Ridge, Kentucky in 1801. The Cane Ridge Revival was a a large multi-day camp meeting held in Cane Ridge, Kentucky in early August of 1801. People came from all over the place. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people assembled. It's been described as the largest and the most famous camp meeting of the Second Great Awakening. The Great Awakenings were marked, revivals marked by powerful emotional preaching and and often Pentecost-like manifestations. Cane Ridge had those things, but their primary purpose of gathering was communion, as a sign of union and unity. There's, there's a rich history there that's worth exploring, and I've looked at it quite a bit over the years, and we'll just have to leave it there for today. But the significance of Cane Ridge is what came out of it, and that is a unity movement called the Restoration Movement. And the significance for us is that Sherwood Oaks is a part of that. That's That's our history. It goes back to Cane Ridge and then beyond, of course. The Restoration Movement, sometimes called the Stone-Campbell Movement because of two men who were instrumental in bringing unity to divided Christians, uh, Alexander Campbell and Barton W. Stone. And and their, their dream and their idea and the ideal was that Various Christians, hyphenated Christians, would give up their denominational loyalties that were dividing them at the time and just be united as Christians, Christians only, based on what the Bible says. And so some of the key slogans that were a part of the movement and still are is no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible, we are Christians only but not the only Christians, in matters of faith, unity, in matters of opinion, liberty in all things love. It was a call to go back to the Bible, simply look at it and try to do what it says and be united. Three major church groups today in our community and all across the United States and all across the world trace their history back to this unity movement. And those would be the Churches of Christ, which I spent 60 years in the Churches of Christ, the Independent Christian Church, which is what this is, and then the Disciples of Christ. Originally, those three groups were one, 
But ironically, of course, they divided. The Churches of Christ and the Christian Church divided in 1903 over the use of instrumental music and missionary societies and a few other things. And then in 1927, the Christian Church divided basically over liberal theology, and that produced what we would call today the Disciples of Christ. The Restoration Movement has had a tremendous impact and still does all around the world. And you could look at just Sherwood Oaks and, and what our missionary partners all around the world, you can see that just through our own lens. But there's a lot of things we could point to. One thing that just is kind of interesting to me, there, there's a lot of colleges and universities, dozens of them in, in our country, that trace their heritage back to the restoration movement and were started by restorationists to serve the purpose of this movement. Abilene Christian University, Butler, believe it or not. And Butler in the early 50s spun off Christian Theological Seminary, which is the Disciples of Christ Seminary. Christian, uh, Cincinnati Christian University, sadly, which closed its doors, I think, in 2019. Lipscomb University, Harding University, Johnson University down in Knoxville. Pepperdine, you've heard of Pepperdine, that's a Church of Christ school originally. Texas Christian University, TCU, have a good football team. They're, they are also a restoration college. You know, we could go on, we could go on and on about history and about the past, but I think we need to move on and, and have a forward focus. And so while being deeply rooted in the past and knowing who we are, we need to look at the present and look at the future. And so our teaching today is centered around a prayer of Jesus, a prayer for unity, and thanks to that prayer of Jesus recorded in John 17, we are a unity movement that strives to align with the heart and the desire of Jesus. This prayer is so needed today. I don't have to tell you that our country is so divided. I've never seen anything like it, and I don't like it, and you probably don't either. It seems like everything is politicized. Things that shouldn't be politicized are politicized, and then that leads to polarization. And there's a danger that I see that I want us to all think about, and that is it seems like today that issues are all bundled together in one side or another, and there's just these issues that are all bundled together. And so, a lot of people just buy into the whole package without any discernment, without any sense of independence and critical thinking. And, and to me, it's just really, really dangerous. And, and so we've lost, it seems, we've lost our civility, the ability to, to have a civil conversation. And I don't know, from both sides, there's just a lot of virtue signaling and a lot of, how can you be so dumb to think that way or believe that or vote this way or vote that way? And it's like, eh. The reason I say all that is because often the church starts reflecting the culture. And, and some of that stuff creeps into the church. And it shows up in ways that's not healthy, ways that are not helpful in any way. And uh, so when we start thinking about this prayer of Jesus, there's a couple things that I want to get in my mind before I go there and see what he says. I think these are helpful to me, so I'm just talking to myself here. There's a couple things I want to keep in mind before I get to John 17. Number one is that God does not need political power to accomplish his will. 
doesn't need it. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, some trust in presidents, some trust in politics, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. I've wrestled with this a lot, uh, and I look at Jesus, and, and as I look at Jesus, he does not seek power through politics, but rather he changes the world through submissive service. And you look at Jesus and his interaction, he's mostly indifferent about politics. Render unto Caesar what's Caesar's. He's, he's just not too concerned about the politics of his day, the government of his day, which is very hostile. And, and does, he, does he criticize the, the culture around him? I don't think so. You, I'm open to being persuaded otherwise, but I don't see it. And so he is quite critical at times, but he's critical of religious people who were ineffective and divisive. And his, the main concern of Jesus, I, I'm completely confident, the main concern of Jesus was the inbreaking of his kingdom, the beginning of his church, its ethics, its values of love and unity, which become a compelling force in the culture. So that's the first thing I want to remember, that God does not need politics. The second thing is it's not my business or the church's mission to condemn the world. Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn the world. And if we are the body of Christ, then we carry on his mission and mindset. So we don't come to condemn the world. Paul says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. And so he's speaking this in the context of a very mixed up, messed up, divided church in Corinth. And and Paul is saying, look... My main concern is that you get your house in order and that you maintain an orderly house. You are not the judge of those on the outside. You know, that's not your business. And so we certainly can be a voice of conscience, and we should be. And we can be a guiding light that comes from careful conviction. And our collective voices can be compelling if we are loving and united, even though we may hold really different views on lots of things. I'm sure we do. I just, I just talk to myself, I, say, I need to be exceedingly careful about how I present myself to the world if I represent Christ, ambassador of Christ. Tim spoke about that a few weeks ago. It was such a great lesson that I'm, I'm an ambassador. So how am I representing Christ to the culture? And how am, I, how am I reflecting Christ in the church with you? So those are a couple things that I have to keep in mind as I go to the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. This is literally a dying prayer of Jesus just hours before the crucifixion. And Jesus knows that his time has come. He knows where he came from. He knows where he's going. He knows it's time. And so he bows in prayer before his father, and he says, Father, I want you to glorify me. 
in this process. And he, and he prays for eternal life, which will only come through him and what he's about to do. And then he prays for his disciples, the ones right around him. He prays for their protection. He prays that they would be in the world, but not of the world. And then he says this, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world, and I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth. Well, after Jesus prays for those disciples right around him, he then prays for you. He prays for me. Now, drink deeply of this. He says, I'm not praying, I'm praying not only for these disciples, the ones right around me, but for all who will ever believe in me through their message. That's us. So here's his prayer for us. I am praying that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. So through our unity, we can change the world. I'm a part of a unity movement. We are a unity movement. We are a unity movement on a mission to show the world a different way. Our unity points to the way, the truth, the life, who is Jesus. The world can come to know him through us by the way we treat each other. So Jesus said, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. About 20 years later, Paul echoes the prayer of Jesus to that messed up Corinthian church. He says, I appeal to you, I beseech you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, I, I plead with you to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church, rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. Anybody read those things and say, oh, wow, prayer of Jesus, plea of Paul, it's pretty, I don't know, seems pretty high, pretty hard. And I think as a church we are, we're united, but we have some work to do, don't we, to, 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 to measure up to this prayer of Jesus and plea of Paul. So, so let's just think of a little bit, how can we get better? How can we deepen our unity? How can we become more of a compelling case to the culture that Christ is the way to life? So you remember that video that we showed at the beginning, uh, the 
the metronomes, metronomes were all out of sync doing their own thing. And then they placed them on a new foundation, which was a couple of cans. There's a whole bunch of science you can read about why this works. But what happens is, as they were on that new foundation, they were able to synchronize, they were able to get together to work in harmony and unity. And the key, from everything I read, is that moving dynamic foundation. It allows everything to synchronize. And so it's, it's not a perfect illustration, but it's a way of saying that we, as individuals have a living, moving, dynamic foundation of Jesus, if we have that, he works and moves to synchronize us with him, and then through him, we can synchronize with each other. The key is the commonality that we have outside of ourselves, which is Christ, and the key is focusing on what we share in Christ, and by focusing on that, then we have a bond that transcends it transcends our tribes and our tribalisms. It transcends our politics and all the things that are petty that might divide us, our selfishness. So the main thing we share in common is that none of us can be saved through our own effort. You can't be saved by anything that you've accomplished, achieved, whatever. We're saved by grace. We're only saved by the initiative of God when we respond to that. It's not about me, it's not about you, it's about God taking the initiative to invite us into his life. Did you see that in the prayer of Jesus? I am in them as you are in me. And so the, 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 the Trinity, the God himself, is, is a, a picture of unity out of diversity, Father, Son, and Spirit, diversity, but they're one God. So there's unity, and uh, there's a Greek word, perichoresis, that describes this inner movement of the Godhead, and so they, they flow in and out of one another, and some people call it the divine dance, and, and so it's like Jesus saying, Father, I want, I want them to be a part of the dance. I want them to, to come and know the life that, that we know, this beautiful unity that comes out of diversity and the recognition of diversity, but yet there's a unity, and so that's, that's the prayer of Jesus. We are a unity movement. And at the beginning of our movement is a focus on communion, as I said. And, and have you ever thought about that word? You see the word communion, and you have C-O-M, com, which means with or together. And you see union. So basically, communion means participation, sharing in something which is common to all of us. It's very similar to the word community, unity together. And so one mark of Restoration Church is this weekly communion. So if you go to Disciples, you go to a Christian Church, you go to Church of Christ, on Sunday you will have communion because it's, it's a core value. And it's a time where we reflect and, and think about what God has done through Jesus to make His beloved children. We understand that we've been separated because of our sins and we, we know that we could not fix it. So Jesus comes and He was one who had to die to take our sins, but he was glad to die. And we're told that when we're baptized, we're reenacting the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We die to sin, we're buried in water, we come up out of the water to live a new life. And we're told that we're given the same spirit to drink when we receive the spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, you're baptized into the body. So when I'm baptized, I'm not only 
baptized into relationship with God, I'm baptized into relationship with you. And Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 12 in the body in different parts, but yet we are one body. And so the Spirit of God is given to us to help us achieve that. We're, we're given unity through the Spirit, and we are called to maintain it through the bond of peace, according to Ephesians 4. I did some calculating last week. I've taken communion more than 2,000 times in my life, and I don't remember most of them. Just like I don't remember most of the 70,000 meals I've eaten. But I know if I hadn't eat the, eaten those 70,000 meals or most of them, I would not be alive today. And I think the, tr- the, th- the same is true spiritually. If I, if I don't commune with Christ and remember who I am in Christ and remember who you are, then I would not be spiritually alive today. And so most communion experiences for me have been not memorable, but there are some that are unforgettable. And I want to share just a couple with you that highlight the the unifying purpose of communion. Back in 1983, I had some friends, Kevin and Tammy Dye, who lived in the highlands of Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea is just north of Australia. They were missionaries there, and they were friends of mine, so I went to see them for a couple weeks. And Papua New Guinea was a very wild place. It still is. But in those days, cannibalism had just recently been outlawed made illegal in the late 60s. So you know it's still going on. And so it kind of makes you have a, a few thoughts when you go out in the bush a little bit. So anyway, one Sunday morning, we got into this uh, pickup truck, a little Toyota four-wheel drive, and we went down the road as far as it could go. And then we got out and we climbed a little hill into this village, and there were lots of little grass huts kind of in a circle, and then there was an open area in the middle. So we, we walked into the open area, and as we stood there, people started coming out of the bush all around us. So one by one, the church gathered. We sang. We prayed. I think I preached, but I really don't remember because it was forgettable, I'm sure. But the one thing I do remember is taking communion. We sat there on uh, rocks and logs, and we took the bread, representing the broken body of Jesus, and we took the cup, representing his blood poured forth. And as I was taking communion, I was just so struck by how different I was from these folks. I was white, I was middle class, I was educated, I was privileged in so many ways, and it was so obvious at that moment. And those around me were very, very black, very black, and extremely, extremely poor. They were uneducated. Some of them only had leaves on. They didn't have any clothes. They had holes in their ears and holes in their nose where they would put bones for various ceremonies in their culture. And as we took communion, even though we were so different, there was a union. There was a unity based on the love of God. It hit me so, so hard that day, and I still haven't forgotten it, obviously, that God does not favor me over them. 
I'm no better in His eyes than they are. And He loves them just as much as He loves me, and they are saved in the same way that I'm saved. There's no difference. And in communion, we share a perfect unity. We share in the most, we share in common the most important thing in life, which is eternal life through Jesus. And we all get there in the same way. The, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. It's all the same. Another unforgettable communion experience was a few years ago when one of our church members, I think he was in his 50s, early 50s, was dying of cancer. And so he got to the point that he couldn't assemble with us anymore. So one Sunday afternoon, we all, or some of us, piled into a church van and, and went to his place. And we gathered in his living room and we sang and we prayed and, and we took communion. It was such a powerful moment because it, it was just a, a moment where we were aware of living and dying and we were aware of the unity between the healthy and the unhealthy. Well, a few days after that, he went into the hospital for the last time and he died a few days later. But on the Sunday morning in that hospital before he died, I went up early to, to see him and I took communion with me. But when I got there, he was unresponsive. But his wife and his mother were there. So the three of us surrounded his bed and took communion. And I still remember just having this awareness that there's such a unity between living and dying. And thanks to Jesus Christ, the only difference is those who die in Christ are better off by far. To live as Christ, to die as gain, Paul would say in Philippians 1. And that's what we proclaim in communion. The last part of the prayer of Jesus says this, Father, I want those whom you have given me to be with me where I am. I just want them... I want them to know what it's like to be with us. Now, communion is a powerful reminder that we are a unity movement. In just a few moments, Rabbi Tim, teacher Tim, you really had a weird dream, didn't you? Yeah, that's about okay. We won't go into that right now. But he's going to lead us in some responsive readings that the Word of God carries the freight. And, and so you'll just see and be reminded of how we can achieve unity. Before we get there, again, just a couple of fundamental things that I want to set in my mind to remind me. And these are things I'm going to take home with me today. And, and they're these. As I look at the culture, I don't like a whole bunch of what I see. But I want to be exceedingly careful about what I say because lots and lots of people are watching. I want to be responsible. I want to be careful. I want to be Christ-like if I feel compelled to respond. And I want to, I want to filter it through a couple questions. Is what I'm about to say or what I'm about to post, is that going to harm or enhance the kingdom of God? And as ambassador of Christ, is this going to represent well? Is it going to increase 
the chances that someone will want to know Christ or will it decrease? Will it push them farther away? That's one thing I want to keep in mind. The second thing is as I interact with you and you interact with me and we see things that we don't agree on, can we speak the truth in love? Yes, we can. And, and just with respect and, and the understanding that we just are not going to agree with everything, but we have something that's so much more important in common, and that com commonality in Christ is more important than things that would divide us. So we, we just take home this last word from the restoration movement. In matters of faith, unity. In matters of opinion, liberty. In all things, charity or love. You doing okay, Tim? I'm doing well. I thought you were asleep for a second. Mm, just praying for you. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I forgot to mention this earlier. There's several of these. These are really nice little, uh, what kind of church is this? This explains the restoration movement and, and a little, little more than what I said, but uh, there's copies of that on the table. Yeah, it's a good, that's a good Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.